There is evidently a very hard context uh, happening just while we're speaking in the last days, the last weeks, with uh, very heavy evolutions. And they also uh, concern a lot workers uh, as unions all over uh, the continent uh, and not only in Europe, evidently, all over the world. So we, we see normalizations of uh, some discourses of, of the far right uh, happening. This is a statement by Thomas Meesen. He works in the International Department of the Belgian Trade Union Confederation, ACV. In 2024, there will be European Parliament elections, and, as polls suggest, the right-wing populists are expected to increase their standing. In this second half of ESA's two-part podcast on right-wing populism, we're going to explore how the increased right-wing influence could change the way things work in the European Union. If you haven't already heard the first episode, I'd encourage you to start with that. We Work Europe podcast of the European Centre for Workers' Questions. According to surveys, if EU elections were to be held today, anti-EU far-right political parties, which form the Identity and Democracy, ID, group in the EU Parliament, would win 87 out of 705 seats. Currently, they hold 60 seats. In the first episode, we travelled to Italy and talked about the current situation in the country, with Giorgia Meloni as its right-wing populist prime minister. To explore the European dimension, we'll have to look at Italy once again. Italy is currently governed by a three-party coalition that ranges from centre-right to far-right. The Fratelli d'Italia, or Brothers of Italy, who are far-right, the Liga, or League, who are extreme-right, and Forza Italia, who are centre-right. They work together to form the government. But, of course, members of these parties also have seats in the European Parliament, though in different political groups, says Francesco Nespoli. He is a researcher from Rome and analyses political communication. Fratelli d'Italia, Brothers of Italy, it stays in the European group of conservative and reformists. And then the League uh, is affiliated to identity and democracy. And Forza Italia belongs to uh, the European People Party. And so three different groups in Europe, but they managed to govern uh, together uh, in, in Italy. In the European Parliament, these politicians are sliced into different factions. The ID, Identity and Democracy, is the extreme right group, whereas the ECR, European Conservative and Reformist Group, belongs to the far-right Eurosceptic spectrum, while the Conservative EPP, European People's Party, is centre-right. Normally, when it comes to resolutions, they seldom agree. Back home in Italy, however, they have managed to do so. In future, this collaboration could possibly become a reality at the European Parliament too. 
At a meeting of EU far-right parties in Florence, Italian far-right league leader Matteo Salvini from the ID, who is part of the governing coalition, called on the EPP to collaborate with other far-right-wing forces to, and this is a quote, liberate Brussels. Deputy Prime Minister and Foreign Affairs Minister Antonio Tajani has been advocating for a drawing together of the EPP and the ECR with the hope that they could form a solid majority in the European Parliament after the 2024 European elections. However, Manfred Weber, head of the EPP party and political group, officially denies any aspirations of a collaboration with the extreme right at a European level. Also, other political groups in the European Parliament warn against cooperation with the extreme right. We are really trying to do an in-depth analysis of the work the Parliament is doing, especially in terms of their work concerning the social files, what is happening there in the Employment and Social Affairs Committee, and what is then being put into the plenary. And we think it's really interesting what is coming forward there. It's evidently also linked to the broader European agenda. This is Thomas Miesen, once again, from the Belgian Trade Union Federation, ACV. Together with the organisation Vote Watch Europe, he monitors decision-making in the European Parliament. The aim of this is to improve transparency within European policy-making. You can check the votes and that's what we're doing, but everybody can. And if you assess today, you compare it to the Bundestag, you compare it to our national parliament here, you have to say... Transparency at European level is a higher level than in so many member states. It's, It's also much more open, transparent. Despite all of these positive developments in the European Parliament, Thomas is really concerned about the voting behaviour on some important resolutions regarding European social policy. There is a good example of this. The European Parliament's resolution of the 10th of February 2021 on reducing inequalities, with a particular focus on reducing in-work poverty. This is a statement by Nicholas Schmidt, EU Commissioner of Jobs and Social Rights in the EU Parliament, defending this resolution. What we need is adequate minimum wages and better coverage by collective agreements. These are the best ways to combat in-work poverty and poverty at large. The fight against inequality and poverty will be an essential part of the action plan to implement the European Pillar of Social Rights. In December, this House has adopted a comprehensive resolution on a strong social Europe for just transitions. In the Parliament, out of 691 members, 365 voted in favour, 118 against, and 208 members abstained. No members of the ECR or ID groups voted for the resolution to reduce inequality and in-work poverty. Most of them voted against or abstained. Even though the resolution on in-work poverty passed, in the future, with a stronger political influence and a stronger majority of far-right members, this outcome could change. And this could have severe consequences for all workers in Europe, as making further progress regarding social policy measures would be much more difficult. For Thomas Miesen especially, the ID and ECR point of view is hard to comprehend. 
it's evidently totally not coherent. It's even less coherent if you see where they uh, have positions on, on all kinds of European files. I mean, if you're totally nationalist and you say uh, everything has to be resolved at the national level, why do you go to the European Parliament? Or you vote uh, all the time absent or uh, you don't vote. But, uh, I mean, they take a lot of voting positions. We are in a, in, in a very heavy situation with a situation of war where a lot of migrants have to flee to Europe because of a, a war which is realized by somebody who is in close contact with all these far-right actors. But even though far-right populists are getting stronger, once they are in power, they are tending to appear more pragmatic and less radical. So why is that? Are the agitators becoming tame? And is the threat to democracy in the end not as big as anticipated? Political scientist Francesco Nespoli believes that this has much to do with the geopolitical situation the EU is currently in. Giorgio Meloni understand that uh, it's not the right moment for questioning the European Union and how it works. Also because she wants to play a role in European policy, especially for what is about immigration policy. So he's trying to get a lot of credit for convincing the European Union uh, to change uh, their attitude towards political policy and immigration, immigration policies. Moreover, she wants to be a leader in Europe for, uh, for what is about immigration. The strategy of the far-right populists, when it comes to the EU, is to undermine the further integration of the social aspects of the European project, such as the European Pillar of Social Rights, while at the same time not losing its geopolitical protection or its financial support. Simultaneously, they aim to change the EU into something of a Europe of the fatherlands. This is what right-wing populists of the first hour, such as Viktor Orban from Hungary, have been demanding for years. Rita Gerdini from the Cooperative Movement in Bologna. You met her in the first episode of this podcast on local welfare solutions, believes that all this could become reality. And national politics in Italy gives us a good example of this potential development at the European level. C'è un evidente interesse a cambiare le maggioranze all'interno del Parlamento europeo e quindi a spostare. Maybe it's true because there is a clear interest in changing the majority in the European Parliament. So far, there has been an alternation between centre governments and centre-left alliances. But we have never had a Europe with a right-wing majority, although you can only speak of a European government up to a certain point, because there is no European government, as we know. Therefore, I believe that the political majorities, especially in the bloc of countries that have recently joined Europe, which have right-wing governments, can hope to catalyze more consensus with the leadership of a government by a young right-wing woman in a country that, although not decisive in Europe, is important. Sperare di poter in questo modo catalizzare più, più consenso, sì. So, according to Rita, Giorgia Maloney could move the discourse further to the right, and, with her figurehead status, this could also have an impact on more moderate groups of voters. The Italian example should be a warning sign for European social policy. In view of the next EU elections in 2024, 
current social policy measures, such as the pillar of social rights, are under threat if the right-wing populists and far-right politicians gain more ground. In the end, the success of right-wing policy is also due to an unequal distribution of wealth. But there is an answer, says Thomas Meeson. And the good news is it's actually quite easy to address this. Uh, There are not so many tools in the end to see for distribution of wealth. Uh, One is wage justice through collective bargaining uh, and others. And as worker, if I contribute, I want to have a decent living. The other way is taxation. And so, I mean, if you see all the forms of taxation possible from wealth taxation, income taxation, VAT, etc., etc., well, there are lots of possibilities. A strong response to that would be to further foster initiatives such as the European Pillar of Social Rights and welfare state measures in general. In view of what is at stake next year at the European elections, all pro-European parties should make clear that they plan to further strengthen the social dimension of the European Union to fight inequality. And that's it for these two linked episodes. If you want to read more about these topics, just check out the ESA magazine. In the next episode, we'll travel from Italy to Croatia. There, we'll talk about how lifelong learning can prevent a country from losing its young workers. Stay tuned. If you like We Work Europe, do give us a five-star rating and don't forget to subscribe. Also, if you have any interesting topics or feedback for us, just contact isa at isa.org. We Work Europe is the podcast from ESA, the European Centre for Workers' Questions, which receives financial support from the European Union. This podcast was narrated by me, Rebecca Sharp. Script and production by Escucha, Audio Identity.